0: We are starting, though, talking about an open letter. It was written by Chief Neil DuBord, the police, the Delta police chief. And it is an open letter addressing concerns about drug decriminalization. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is acting inspector James Sandberg, public affairs manager with the Delta Police Department. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Good afternoon, Jill. Thank you for uh, the invite to come and speak. Uh,
0: This is a a letter that takes a look at decriminalization, and it references what's been happening in Portugal. And I know there have been other news articles lately uh, about officials in Portugal, uh, which kind of embraced this uh, taking drug offenses out of the the criminal aspect of things going more, trying to focus more on treatment, Uh, some of the growing pains that are being seen in Portugal. Can you talk a little bit more, what are some of the concerns that the Chief uh, Chief Dubord has raised in this letter?
1: Certainly. Uh, I'll start with a little bit of the background. The Portugal, Portugal piece is very important here. It's uh, a model that for years has been uh, really well received in terms of its success and just recently has been uh, the, the subject of some some critique. Uh, in Portugal, the funding has changed, and as a result of that, the use of their program has changed. It's really shown a dramatic drop in the last few years. The reason that's important for us here in British Columbia is when decriminalization conversations first started, it started largely based on the success of Portugal. Uh, There were a lot of parallels that were drawn. But what we've done here uh, thus far in our deployment of of our model is we have focused on the one pillar of decriminalization we you know I don't want to discount that there are other pillars here we have safe supply for example Uh, but the focus that we have had thus far has been on the decriminalization piece And with that focus, we haven't seen the number of overdose deaths drop. So we've been active with decriminalization since the beginning of this year and year to date. Uh, The deaths in B.C. related to overdose uh, are 791. In the same time period last year, we were at, uh, I, I think the average over the last couple of years was 772. So it hasn't really changed anything Chief Dubord is looking at what he has suggested in his open letter yesterday is a whole system approach that involves a focus or a, an increased focus on rehabilitation and treatment.
0: And and when you mentioned that as well, looking at the numbers in Portugal, because that really was supposed to be, and was, I think, in the beginning, more of the focus was re- recovery, it was treatment. But if you look, at again, some of the concerns being raised in Portugal is that there are now very lengthy waits for state-funded for, state funded for, for Publicly funded rehabilitation treatment, so people aren't getting that, and I see some of uh, some of the issues uh, like you just raised. Uh, we we haven't focused on that though, and and that's kind of what Chief de is getting at. So, would it be a matter of then embracing those other pillars, or or what would the the chief and and I suppose others like to see?
1: Yeah. So what what Chief de Board is is campaigning for or suggesting here is is a whole system approach that that uh, you know it, it provides timely access to treatment. Uh, That treatment must be evidence-based. So what I mean by that is if we were to develop and employ a standardized measurable indicator that measures the results, shows that the treatment is successful, that is, that is a start. Right now I think that that piece uh, isn't necessarily solidified very well across our model, the way we employ treatment. The number of treatment beds needs to increase to make it timely. When someone is ready for rehabilitation or substance use treatment, uh, they shouldn't have to wait for two months or three months or, or six months. It should be the day that they make the decision to uh, seek that treatment.
0: I know he doesn't say this in the letter but one of the the points of the Portugal system as well has been that yes it is still technically voluntary for people who are caught up in this or who are found with with drugs and uh, even though it's been decriminalized but the, the choice is then given you can either go into the criminal justice system or you can go into treatment. So it's not forced treatment, but it is a choice that people are given. Is that something that Chief Dubord is suggesting here as well, or even going further and suggesting that maybe we relook at the idea of forced treatment?
1: We haven't discussed that specifically, but what I can say about that is that would involve a, a... a lengthy legislative process to be able to even offer uh, offer treatment as a as a an option to avoid uh, a criminal charge or a criminal conviction. So that would be out of out of our hands and and really in the hands of the legislators. Uh, I think that that's too far down the road in terms of being prepared to make the next step. So maybe that's a conversation that needs to occur, but the first thing before that is just the timeliness and the access to treatment for those that have made the decision to go voluntarily.
0: And is it because the chief is seeing this as becoming more of an issue in Delta that he wrote this letter, or or is it is it addressing not only Delta, but the bigger picture of the whole province?
1: Um, well, I think that there's... Uh, it's it's provincial for sure. Uh, from from our perspective, we see uh, each each pillar being operated in a in a different silo, and that approach needs to uh, we need to eliminate those silos and and have a, a holistic, collective approach towards the the issue. It will improve the results in terms of speaking specific specifically for Delta. One thing that you know I, I'm going to draw in a whole other. Uh, a whole other component here that's not necessarily specific to decriminalization, but I'll actually bring it in in relation to how policing has, has changed over the last several years. We're seeing more and more um, different things downloaded on on policing in general. The change to decriminalization has changed the landscape in which we work. Uh, we are now looking at things with more of a, a social lens and and being proactive in terms of addressing some of those underlying issues versus being a responder to a criminal act, which overall is is uh, the proper approach. It's it's a it's advancement it's showing that. Law enforcement is, is growing and changing as an industry and as, uh, as a community, what the community is seeking. But what happens is when we change these, there's all kinds of also uh, unintended consequences. And some of those unintended consequences are, uh, uh, you know, uh, an impact on the work environment and the stress level to the officers that are actually performing the work. And I'm I'm way off topic here, but Mm -hmm. I'm down a a rabbit hole. But uh, it's important because uh, we also have to be able to uh, motivate and engage our, our people to do the right thing all the time. And so... One of the this complete sidebar I recognize, but it's uh, it's important that we recognize the efforts of all the law enforcement officers in this because their role has changed dramatically, too. And we're coming to grips with that. We're trying to still understand that.
0: Right. I don't think it's that, that far off topic. I think, uh, l- like you were saying, it's it's all connected and, and, and such. I'm, I'm curious, though, when you say that, that it's changed the role, because that, that was one of the arguments that, that was being made about decriminalization was, mm-hmm. at least in Vancouver and some other jurisdictions, was that police haven't been ticketing or they haven't been charging or, or, or suggesting charges, recommending charges for small amounts of illicit drugs for many, many years, and that decriminalization was kind of uh, almost administrative, or it was something that, that, yes, put it on the books, but it wouldn't actually change what's happening in communities and in neighborhoods. Is that the case in Delta, or have things really changed in Delta?
1: Uh, what I'll kind of get into the micro level of the, of the change if I can. So you're correct to say that, you know, simple possession has not been something that's been pursued for a while by the, the policing industry. We, we haven't been arresting and charging for uh, simple possession, but we are still uh, pursuing the trafficking charges and, uh, and the, the possession for, for the purpose of trafficking. Um, where we are experiencing the change is actually uh, if you if you think about the motivation of the work that we're we're doing, uh, we have changed uh, to a far more progressive and far more socially advanced perspective. It's not reactionary really anymore. We are now in the in the realm where we are performing in some regards social work to be able to Prevent the issue from actually developing to the point of it, it ever getting to a criminal level. If that if that makes sense, we're mm-hmm. we're looking out for our community wellness, our community uh, well-being, um, and and in doing so, the goal, hopefully, is you know in, in a in a vacuum or in a utopian environment, making our community uh, the healthiest it can be.
0: And, and just to kind of go back to something you mentioned then, is, is the main thing coming out of this, or if there was to be a top recommendation, would it be that increase in treatment beds? So anytime somebody is at that point and they're ready for treatment, there is a bed ready? Well, let, let
1: me, uh, you know, I'll, I'll reframe some of Chief DeBoard's words in his letter there. Uh, he, he talks about the holistic approach. Um, we don't simply want people to survive. The goal is to help them get healthy again. Uh, With decriminalization, with safe supply, we're making it easier. Hopefully, the goal is to make it easier for people to survive. And I, I, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek because the numbers aren't supporting that. But At the end of the day, is that enough? Are we satisfied with people simply surviving or do we want to see them get healthy again? And if we want to see them get healthy again, then I suggest that you need the treatment piece.
0: Acting Inspector James Sandberg, thank you so much for joining us. More discussions certainly to be had on this, but thank you so much for your time today.
1: Uh, Thank you again for the invites. My pleasure
0: as you've been hearing on the news when it comes to the Hollywood strikes, striking actors joining writers who walked out in May, many sharing the same concerns about pay, about working conditions, about the industry's use of artificial intelligence for many projects. And one of the big questions, how long will this continue and will things actually change? Well, joining us now is Zach Arnold, an associate producer with Cobra Kai, also the CEO of the company Optimus yourself. Zach, thank you so much for taking the time today.
2: Yeah, you're more than welcome, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. Thank you. Well, I,
0: I know you've been fielding a lot of calls from people who are now finding themselves on strike or on the picket lines, and I do want to talk more about that. Before we do that, though, you uh, are, are part of this industry. I know you you worked on the show, Cobra Kai, that many people will be familiar with. I know you've also written a lot about the writer's strike. W- what is your take on kind of where things are right now with that writer's strike, and what led to things? things unfolding the way they did?
2: Sure. Basically, what we're seeing at this point is a a once-in-a-generation reckoning of the way that the Hollywood industry does business with its filmmakers and its creatives. And I now, as we see the evolution, or I think a more accurate way to put it, is the de-evolution of talks and negotiations. This is potentially a a once-in-a-lifetime change in the paradigm of the actual business model. And if the new business model for entertainment even requires humans at all of which obviously I am fully in support of all of the humans, the creatives and the filmmakers being intricately in the, involved in this process. Um, but so what we are far from the point of one side says they want 2% and one size they want 8% and then eventually we'll negotiate down and we'll meet at 5%. This is a complete dismantling of this relationship where it's an existential fight for the writers and for the actors. And by default, all filmmakers are affected by this and our relationship with the, the value that we bring to our craft and the value that it creates and wanting a part of it. And now literally in the creation of it, whether it's the humans that are driving the AI or if the AI is driving humans. So we, we have two diametrically opposed sides. And as much as I wanted to be cautiously optimistic earlier in this game, now we see the actual game that's being played. And we're in for a very long game of chicken to see who swerves first.
0: How does it change things with striking actors joining the writers?
2: Uh, Well, I think that what we're seeing is this universal solidarity where it's no longer about the craft. If you go back to previous strikes and negotiations, actors would have slightly different things that they needed and required versus writers, versus directors, versus IAPI, which at least in the United States covers the below the line workers, the cinematographers, the editors like me. And the game that the AMPTP played very, very well was pitting the craft against each other so nobody paid attention to the true villain. But what we're seeing now is that game doesn't work anymore, and we're seeing universal solidarity amongst all of us that are creating this art and uh, that are part of contributing to this business. So we're, the the actors coming along, the writers, and now all of the other crafts and unions showing up like I see so many people from my guild the editors guild showing up on the picket lines along with so many of the other crafts this is now about a, a human fight rather than a fight for a specific craft so I think the fact that the actors have gotten involved and they're taking a stand with the writers just speaks to what it's going to take to change this and I'm all in support of everything that they're doing.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, artificial intelligence, and I know that's certainly part of this. Uh, we've also uh, heard uh, or, or talking about working conditions, talking about pay as well, uh, and, and looking at, at how actors are responding to this and not going to premieres and, and talking about the impact moving forward. Uh, how do you see that playing out as this continues or if this does continue for, for weeks, potentially months?
2: Yeah, I think we're definitely in the conversation uh, of months at this point, and I'm I'm not in any of the negotiations or on either side that's on any committee, so I don't speak from a place of education or insider knowledge, but just given the tenuousness and the relationships between all these parties, I definitely think we're measuring this in months at this point, as much as I would like to have that not be the case. Uh, But as far as artificial intelligence specifically is concerned, whether it's the actors or the writers or it's all the craftspeople and all the specializations, I think the the fundamental problem with this narrative is when we say that this is about, we will not be replaced by AI, the foundation of that argument is that we are replaceable. And if that's the case, then just economy and evolution and everything else will dictate that humans become replaced by AI. And I think that's the wrong argument. The argument should be, we need to regulate, regulate this such that either... We are in charge of the AI versus the AI being in charge of us. That's the argument that really needs to be had, because I think that if it's done the right way, artificial intelligence can be an incredible tool that can manifest and enhance creativity. But when it's only that a tool, not when it takes ownership of the ideas, where the humans still have ownership of the ideas and AI becomes a tool, I have no problem with that. But unfortunately, the way that it's now very clearly going based on some of the things that the AMPTP has either suggested or is outright rejected as far as negotiating points with both the writers and the actors, if they see a way to just replace the human process and, for example, scan a background actor, give them money for one day of work, and now they can use them in perpetuity forever. The same can be said for any actor's likeness. The same can be said for any ideas that are coming from a previous script. But I think that, that this is where it comes back to potentially this is a once-in-a-lifetime change of the business paradigm. That what we really have to decide is do we want entertainment to be something that really furthers and tells the stories of human experience or do we just want it to be consumable garbage? Because if we truly believe that entertainment and the work that we do and the craft that we create is about telling human stories and connecting with each other, there's no way that AI can ever replace us because filmmaking is the one inherently creatively collaborative platform where one person cannot do it. Painting, that's different. Looking at graphic designers, photographers, where it's one person in a room, if you're specialized in that craft, you're going to have a really hard time not being replaced by AI to some extent over time. But filmmaking requires collaboration, and the magic is in the exchange of ideas. So if we, we all agree universally that we want entertainment and film and television and all these other media that we create to really further the human story and help us understand human existence – AI can't replace that. So that's really where I think it's about a fundamental understanding of what is the common goal and now how do we all agree that AI fits into this? I think that's really the bigger conversation that a lot of people are missing in the details.
0: coming up this half hour, we are hoping to connect with one of the representatives of Unite Here Local 40. That is the union that represents hospitality workers in B.C. and talk of workers at three of the high end downtown Vancouver hotels voting in favor of strike action. So that means there could be strike action taking place at the Hyatt Regency Hotel, the Westin Bayshore, and the Pinnacle Harbourfront. Well, joining us now to talk more about what led to this vote and what some of the main concerns are is Sharon Pawa, a representative with Unite Here Local 40. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you for having me. I, we've been talking, I know, about other hotels that have seen strike action that uh, have also uh, had workers raise some of these concerns, but specifically these three hotels, again, the Hyatt Regency, the Westin Bayshore and the Pinnacle front What are the concerns that workers are voting or have voted on?
3: Mm-hmm. So we have workers at the three hotels, um, over a thousand. These include room attendants, front desk agents, bellmen, servers, kitchen staff, a range of positions, ranges of ages, range of ethnicities, and they have taken a strike vote. Uh, the vote concluded last night, Monday night, and they have voted in favor of strike action. And the workers are getting frustrated because they continually have to struggle to make ends meet, and Vancouver is an expensive place to live, and they want a future here. They want to be able to have wages that allow them to live in the city where they work and be able to raise their families and afford a good life here. So that is the primary concern in these negotiations. Uh, Substantial wage increases are needed for hospitality workers. As well, the workers are asking for job security as there is a looming threat that these hotels that they work for could be redeveloped into luxury housing and then their jobs would be kind of out the window. Um, Many of our members have worked at these hotels for 10, 20, even 30 plus years, and they want to guarantee that their jobs are safe. So they're really looking for sustainable, stable hotel jobs and for this industry the hotel industry to you know respect their workers invest in their workers so they can
0: stay here and continue to provide service and when you say they're looking for a substantial wage increase is there a number that workers are looking for I don't have any numbers to give you yet, but I can say that um, the employer and the workers
3: are far away from wages at the bargaining table. Uh, they are not close, and that is why our members have escalated to take this strike vote. Uh, they feel like they are not being heard, and that, um, you know, the wages that they are asking for, uh, the hotel is not willing to provide, but our members are struggling with living in the city. You know, the average uh, one-bedroom apartment in Vancouver is $2,700 a month. And we actually did a survey of our members, um, local hotel workers, and, you know, almost 90% said they had to cut one thing out of their lifestyle just to afford living in Vancouver. And surprisingly, almost 50% of workers who did the survey said that they had to stop buying fresh food in order to afford their cost of living. Now, these are members with families. These are moms. And they're just making, you know, a lot of sacrifices in order to be able to live in Metro Vancouver and work at these hotels, and they're not getting their fair share. Um, You know, hotel room rates have risen. Um, The hotel prices in Vancouver are higher than they've ever been. The hotel industry is booming after the pandemic. They are fully recovered. This is the top tourism destination in Canada. And, you know, the workers want to be respected for the service they provide here. They welcome visitors to Vancouver and they can't even afford to live here. So that is what this, you
0: know, possible strike is, is potentially about. And when you say that workers are not able to live in Vancouver and uh, and and work at these Vancouver hotels, do you mean Metro Vancouver? And that I know it's it's very expensive and that rents have gone up. But like you said, the number that that you that you gave there, twenty seven hundred dollars, is not uh, not um, out of the range of what people are charging for a one bedroom. Uh, but a lot of people do work in downtown Vancouver and don't live in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Do you mean Metro Vancouver, or or more yeah. workers want to be in the Vancouver?
3: um i'm speaking about metro vancouver the 2700 um uh, average room rate was for a bedroom in central vancouver but even in metro vancouver you know it's it's commonly over 2000 a month for rent and what we're seeing is our members do have to travel um farther and farther to work because they have to find places to live farther away from downtown vancouver So, you know, even in our members live in Surrey, Richmond, Burnaby, Um, they don't live in the downtown core, but they can still feel the struggle that comes with living in Metro Vancouver. And the thing is, um, you know, if a member has to live all the way um, in Surrey and work in a downtown Vancouver hotel, they have to transit and that takes away time they can spend with their family. It cuts down, you know, on their free time. So these are all sacrifices hotel workers are making. Just living in Metro Vancouver is getting completely, you know, very, very high cost of living, and it's very, very hard to keep up.
0: Uh, You mentioned the room rates as well in that the room rates for downtown Vancouver hotels have also gone up. I think the number in your news release was an average room rate of about $332 a night. Uh, Is it fair to to match wages, though, to room rates in that if you're a front desk agent or kitchen staff or or some of the other jobs you mentioned, should they be linked to the room rates and that somebody that's working at a hotel with a lower rate wouldn't get paid as much as somebody with the higher rate?
3: Well, I think what the hotel workers are asking for in these negotiations is for, you know, a fair share of the pie. These hotels are making tons of money. The hotel is, industry is booming in general. And they feel like their, wage, their wages are not keeping up. They're not increasing enough for uh, them to have good lives in this city. Um, so I think in any... Um, sort of workplace environment, if your employer's doing well and the majority of your staff are struggling struggling, sorry, to get by, um, you know, that's that's not fair. So the hotel workers know how well the hotels are doing and they just want the wage increases that they believe are fair so they can keep supporting their families.
0: Um, you've mentioned as well, or, or there was mention again in the release put out by uh, Unite, uh, Unite here at Local 40, that workers including workers at these particular hotels, the Hyatt, the Westin, and the Pinnacle, also launched a strike action in 2019 and won a lot of the things they were looking for. So what has happened since 2019 and now? So in
3: 2019, we did go on strike. Um, Downtown hotels did go on strike. It was our first... I think downtown hotel strike in about 20 years. Um, It was very historic. We won great uh, wage increases, workload protections, um, protections for women in the industry, including sexual harassment protections. So that was a great win for our union. Then COVID-19 hit. Um, Everyone, of course, was affected. Our members, uh, many of our members, did lose their hours as hotels cut down on services. Uh, Many were terminated, and. You know, but now it's 2023. The pandemic is over. The hotels are booming again. Um, they are fully recovered, they are making money, and now the hotel workers want to feel recovered and feel like they're also thriving again after the pandemic. Um, They're still struggling, so that's what they do not feel is fair. Um, We did win um, great wage increases in 2019, but it's now 2023. Um, Prices keep going up, inflation keeps going up, and basically they just want wages that allow them to continue to live in the city because they want a future in the city. You know, the tourism industry in Vancouver is critical. Uh, we welcome thousands and thousands of people here. There's cruise lines showing up almost daily. Um, we are a tourism city, and the workers should be treated with respect, and employers should invest in their workers and pay them well to make these sustainable um, tourism jobs.
0: When could picket lines go up if there isn't uh, some common ground found here or that, uh, or if actual uh, strike notice is issued?
3: Mm-hmm. So... Um, Right now, uh, we are, um, you know, waiting for the employer uh, to present us with a fair proposal. Um, When the workers uh, decide uh, that they're tired of waiting, we will issue strike notice. Um, And then picket lines could go up uh, 72 hours later. So as of yet, we have not issued strike notice. Um, So we'll see what the employer does. The workers did vote in
0: favor of strike action. So we'll see. All right, Sharon, uh, we will check back in with you, uh, I'm sure. Thank you so much, though, for taking the time today. Thank you for speaking with me. Have a nice day. As you've been hearing on the news and in the traffic, some big traffic backups on Highway 99 this afternoon. This after a truck with an oversized load hit the overpass southbound. And some photos have been shared about this. There appears to be quite a lot of damage on that overpass. Drivers trying to find other ways of getting around it using Highway 91 and the Alex Fraser. But I think when we heard about this, when people heard that another overpass had been hit, again, the question being asked why does this keep happening joining us now is kelly scott president of the bc road builders and heavy construction association kelly thank you so much for taking the time today
4: you bet Jill. thank you
0: uh, it does seem like we should be able to figure this out doesn't it and stop uh, trucks from hitting these overpasses
4: yeah you you would think so uh, unfortunately it does continue to happen uh uh, not all the time, as there's thousands of trucks that under that go under those uh, overpasses daily. That uh, there's no incident, and then we had the uh, have the odd one that uh, doesn't take the precaution or the measurements. To understand that they're they're going to hit that overpass and and cause immense damage, and uh, and hopefully nobody got hurt on this one, but potentially could cause some uh, serious accidents to people traveling the uh, public uh, through fares, if you will. We're, we're, we're not too sure Jill, why it's happening. I mean, uh, these roads, uh, people travel uh, constantly. They come up from the United States with these truckloads and we don't seem to have an issue. Uh, it may just be the, the local drivers possibly having this issue. Um, a lot of the uh, drivers, as you well know, move across Canada from, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and, and, and do so safely and, and, and without any disruption to traffic.
0: Right. And so, and looking at the photos and a global cameraman got a photo of the overpass that shows the damage to it. Delta police also sent out a photo. I mean, the, this thing got clobbered. There, as you can see, rebar hanging down, giant chunks of the concrete that have been ripped apart, ripped away from the overpass. Even Delta police in their post on this uh, said, uh, this is what crews are dealing with. This may take a while. Uh, So when you talk about that, then are there not standards as far as sizes and and truck drivers would know this overpass would be high enough or, or the truck I'm driving is of this size? I mean, that seems like it would be pretty basic stuff
4: uh to you and i and most of the public it would seem to be fairly basic stuff uh we have some some uh, drivers that are taking uh carrying overloads if you will overheight uh, um, uh, machines if you will on the on the highway and are not really aware of the height that they're, they've got pulled behind them uh the height clearance is fairly standard as i said earlier throughout the province so that doesn't vary what varies is the height of the load that the truckers are bringing and are driving around in. And in some cases, uh, the, we have these incidents. And, and that's the unfortunate part. It's, it's these few incidents. We don't see a lot of them. But for us that are in the public, we would think it'd be fairly normal for us to measure our load before we got into the vehicle and drive away to ensure uh, that we'll be driving through the public uh, byways safely.
0: Do you think there needs to be a system, and I know somebody actually emailed me and brought it up saying that they thought in uh, in Alberta there's it's more punitive, does there need to be a system where there are repercussions, there are consequences for drivers that do this?
4: Well, I think there are anyways, uh, whether there's, we have to stand up or the government has to step in there, but I think those drivers that are and and the uh, people they're driving for are are feeling the effect. I know uh, uh, the commercial vehicle safety inspection people are always on top of this, and there are fines being levied. I I think it just goes back to some more basic training of the drivers. Uh, When you have an overload uh, situation, you need to understand the height that you're carrying, and clearly you need to understand the height restrictions we have through the province with these overpasses. And these few outliers that don't understand that, we suffer the consequences, as is the public trying to drive throughout the, uh, the territories.
0: Is it labeled on the overpass? I, I, I'll fully admit I've never paid that much attention to it because I've never driven a large truck under or by an overpass. But is it clearly labeled so truck drivers know? Like you said, it's pretty universal in the province. But if an overpass is different or the height, is it pretty easy to find that out?
4: Yeah, you'll see, if, <laughs> once you start driving around, you'll see them labeled actually on the overpass. But, but any uh, driver uh, who's had their training uh, in our province has been trained on what height restrictions are throughout the province for overpasses. It's, it's fairly standard. It's common with the, the training services that we provide. Uh, it's in the situations where we have these overloads, uh, overheight situations, where uh, the driver clearly doesn't understand the height. Uh, that they have, nor possibly do they understand the height that they're going under on the uh, under the uh, overpasses. It's it's in our view it's a training issue. Uh, it's we're not unique in British Columbia in the heights that we have in our overpasses. It's uh, pretty standard throughout North America. Uh, as I said earlier, we've got trucks coming in from the states, from Alberta, from Ontario. They don't seem to have this issue. It's it's the local issue when we're we're transporting overheight uh, machines that uh, we hit the overpasses and we have we have this problem here. Kelly And it's not it's not like Jill they have to go under the overpasses. There are ways around them if mm-hmm. they have an overheight situation. But uh either it's expediency or something but it's causing them to take the the fastest way and unfortunately we have incidents like we have today.
0: Kelly, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be talking about this, I know, throughout the afternoon and keeping people up to date. So thanks so much for your time. You bet, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.